We are continuing going through the book of beginnings, Genesis today. And remember, the first 11 chapters in Genesis are about beginnings. They're the primeval history, if you will. And then all of a sudden, chapter 12 moves into the story of Abram and the patriarchs. And a couple weeks ago, just want to catch us up to speed, we learned that God called Abram to leave everything behind. And if he would do that, God would come through with three distinct promises. First, God would give Abram land. Second, he would give him descendants. And third, he would give him a blessing. And Abram responds in faith. He obeys and so begins a journey of learning to walk by faith. However, after he gets to the land of Canaan, which God shows him his blessing that is to come in the years ahead, Abram fails the test of the famine and he heads to Egypt in disobedience from God. And in that disobedience, he really puts at stake the very promises that God had spoken to him. He receives wealth from Pharaoh, which would later cause great conflict and division between his nephew Lot. He most likely also receives a servant named Hagar, which you know later would really cause great family conflict. And in the end, we discovered in chapter 12 that even though we at times are unfaithful, God is always faithful to us. So through all of this, we discover Abram is learning what it means to walk by faith. And so we're learning the same lesson, learning that faith is often followed by famine. Our faith in God is often put to the test through trials and difficulties. And these tests, these trials, they reveal who we really are, what we believe, and they produce learning. Some of you watching right now are teachers and you're familiar with giving your students tests. All of us are familiar with taking tests and I hate taking tests. But the reality is that teachers give student tests to reveal what they have learned. Academic tests reveal what knowledge has been gained by the student. The student can't come back to the teacher or shouldn't come back to the teacher and say, I don't like that C that you gave me because the teacher will respond and say, you earned that C. Abram passed the first test when God called him to leave all that he knew, to leave it all behind and to head towards the land that God was gonna give him. But he failed when famine came and he tried to fast track those very promises by going into the land of Egypt. And so it is, again, with tests and trials and famines in our own life, they reveal what we've learned. They reveal who we really are. They reveal whether or not we fully trust in God. They reveal whether or not we've learned what it means to walk by faith. While Abram is learning and teaching us what it means to walk by faith, his nephew, Lot, is walking by sight. Last week in chapter 13, Pastor Rock illustrated this very point. It was Genesis 13.10 that said, Lot lifted up his eyes and saw the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere. 
Now pay really close attention to this because it's very easy to miss. Notice what the Bible says about Lot. Two verses later in 12, Genesis 13, 12, Abram settled in the land of Canaan and Lot moved his tents to the place near Sodom. Lot moved near to Sodom in verse 12. He walked by sight and thought he could have it both ways. He thought he could remain at an arm's distance from a place known for being extremely wicked among people who were against the ways of God. But now in today's text, today's chapter, Genesis 14, we learn more about who Lot is. After the first recorded battle in scripture, Lot finds himself in trouble. So let's go to that 14th chapter in verse 12. It says, they also captured Lot, Abraham's nephew, who lived in Sodom and carried off everything he owned. Lot's leaning towards Sodom in Genesis 13 has now turned into Lot's full embracement of this wicked land in Genesis 14, which is our text for today. In this chapter, Abraham will rescue his selfish and foolish nephew by entering a battle with no fear and fully trusting God. However, immediately following this, his faith will once again be tested when he encounters two kings representing two very distinct kingdoms. So the title of today's message, it's a bit obscure, though straight from scripture, and it represents a significant lesson that every Christ follower and us corporately as a church must understand. So today's title is called Single Threads and Sandal Thongs. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word that teaches us what it means to walk by faith. It teaches us and illustrates to us the ways in which you have called us to live, ways that bring blessing and your promises. So I pray that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you would not only speak through me today, but you would open the listeners' ears and hearts to understand and to grasp your very word. Amen. Genesis 14 begins with a description of a battle between two coalitions of kings. As mentioned earlier, it is the first recorded war in the Bible, and it really was no small matter. There were four kings in allegiance from the east, representing cities from that area of the Euphrates River, close to actually where Abraham was originally from. Now they were faced by a confederation of five kings representing the lower Jordan Valley, which bordered the Dead Sea. These Eastern kings were headed by Kador Laomer. Say that with me, Kador Laomer, which was the king of Elam. Now I'm going to forgo the names of the other kings for pronunciation's sake. This coalition though from the east had invaded the Jordan area some years before and it had placed the cities around the Dead Sea under tribute. The Bible says that for 12 years, this collection of kings in the Jordan Valley had paid tribute to those kings in the east. But eventually they rebelled in the 13th year and were invaded again. 
In this invasion, these eastern kings unleashed fury over the entire region, brutally annihilating and plundering the area's city. In the midst of all of this, we find Abram, the man of God who is learning to walk by faith. His nephew Lot is taken captive in the attack on Sodom, one of the cities that was crushed by these eastern kings. So one of Lot's men escape, and they report all of that had happened to Abram. And Abram mobilizes 318 trained men and pursues Kador Lamer. He pursues Kador Lamer's army until he catches up with him. Now, God gives Abram an incredible victory. And the Bible says that Abram recovered everything that had been taken. And he brought back Lot, all of his possessions, the people, and all captives that were taken. Abraham basically gets it all. Now, you would think that the battle in Abram's rescue of Lot would be the climax of this story or this chapter. But it's not. The climax of this story is what happens after the battle. Abram's encounter with two distinct kings. You see, God had given Abram the victory, but a test was quickly coming. Remember, faith is often followed by famine. Abram was about to receive a test that would reveal what he had learned, or rather, if he had learned, a test that would truly determine if he was going to walk by faith and trust in God. So let's read the text for today. Genesis chapter 14, I'm going to start at verse 17. After Abram returned from his victory over Kador Lamer and all his allies, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, the king of Salem, and a priest of God Most High, brought Abram some bread and wine. Melchizedek blessed Abram with this blessing. Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has defeated your enemies for you. Then Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of all of the goods he had recovered. The king of Sodom said to Abram, give back my people who were captured, but you may keep for yourself all the goods you have recovered. Abram replied to the king of Sodom, I solemnly swear to the Lord God most high, creator of heaven and earth, that I will not take so much as a single thread or sandal thong from what belongs to you. Otherwise, you might say, I am the one who made Abram rich. So two kings come and approach Abram after this great battle in which Abram rescues his nephew Lot. The first king we learn is Melchizedek. Melchizedek is the king of Salem. Now, the Bible also says, as we just read, that Melchizedek was both king and a priest king of Salem. And Salem in the Bible means peace and most likely was a precursor to Jerusalem. Salem was where Jerusalem is today. Therefore, Melchizedek 
is the king of peace, or even as the Bible interprets, the king of righteousness. Sound familiar? Melchizedek is an Old Testament foreshadowing or representation of Jesus Christ. If you go to the book of Hebrews, it will teach you that very same thing. So both of these men, Abram and Melchizedek, come together and they give God honor and glory for the victory that he had given to Abram. Melchizedek brings bread and wine, which represents communion, and he speaks a blessing over Abram. And in return, Abram worships and honors God by giving an offering a tenth of everything that he had required in the victory. That's one king, Melchizedek, king of Salem. The other king we find out earlier in the text, his name is Bera. He's the king of Sodom. Now he was a defeated king from the city of wickedness, the city of Sodom. Now, Sodom has no explicit meaning in the Bible, but it certainly stands for wickedness as practiced in the very city from which that name comes. Following the victory, Abram has two encounters with two distinctly different kings, Melchizedek and Bera. Both come to Abraham with something, and Abram was instinctively, instinctively drawn to one and he shunned the other. The text says that Abram gave tithes to Melchizedek. They worshiped together. They honored God together. They blessed one another. But Abram told Bera, I solemnly swear to the Lord, God most high, creator of heaven and earth, that I will not take so much as a single thread or sandal thong from what belongs to you. Otherwise, you, Bera, you might say, I am the one who made Abram rich. So after the battle with four kings by right of conquest, everything belonged to Abram. Bera had lost his possessions to the Eastern kings and they in turn had lost them to Abram. He would become wealthy, Abram would, due to keeping the spoils of war and he would gain great favor in the eyes of the people if he was to give back to Bera that was his. Now this would have been a great temptation for a lesser man. Understand this. The defeated king Bera is saying, give me the people and you keep the possessions. Abram could have saved face. He could have stayed wealthy, remained wealthy, but gained great favor amongst the people by giving the people back to the very king who had been defeated. However, Abram regarded Bera's offer as a temptation. He saw it as an attempt by Bera to gain for himself some of the glory for Abram's victory, which would mean giving some of God's glory to a worldly man. Abram knew that if he kept the goods of Sodom and the other cities of the plain, he would never thereafter be able to say that his sole dependence and sole source of God's blessing was from God. He had learned that lesson in Egypt. The king of Sodom now would say, sure, sure, that's what religious people all say. But the real question is that the real reason Abram is prospered is because I let him keep my possessions. You see what's happening there? 
So Abram desires to stand out clearly as a man who prospers only because of God's blessing. If God is the creator and possessor of heaven and earth, as Abram declares that he is, then he is able, God is able to take care of his followers without benefit of the possessions acquired by a corrupt pagan king. Abram knew this. So he was determined to take nothing, not a single thread, not a single sandal thong. And here's the point. As Christians, if the world can claim any part of our victories, then our witness is cheapened and our testimony will be ignored. However, if the glory is all given to God, as Abram determined it should be, then God is truly honored and our witness will stand. Above all things, wealth, success, reputation, even God's promises, Abram desired that God would be given every single ounce of glory. So here's my question for you today. What does it mean to glorify God? What does it mean for us to give God all of the glory? Are we talking about worship, singing? Are we talking about what what we do right before the sermon each week? Now we do glorify God in worship and when we sing. In doing so, we ascribe proper attributes to him. Praise him not only for what he's done, but for who he is. Corporately and personally, we can lift our voice, our hands. We can dance, sing, clap, play instruments and offer up many forms of worship to express the glory of God. However, there comes a point when the world may ask, talk is cheap, songs are cheap. Show me how great your God is by fully trusting in him. Show me how great your God is, not by taking one single thread or sandal thong and wait for the great blessings he has promised you. You see, we confess that God is omnipotent, but do we actually trust him to protect us? We confess that God is omniscient, But do we trust his wisdom as revealed in scripture rather than trusting our own understanding? And what about when they differ? We confess that the things of this world will fade, but the spiritual things will endure forever. But do we put spiritual concerns before material ones? Is the state of our souls really more important than the state of our pocketbooks? Is the state of our neighbor's souls really more important than our own personal political bents, beliefs, and opinions? The Bible has a lot to say about giving glory to God. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Paul writes, whatever, what, whether you eat, drink, or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God Everything that you do from the littlest things that you eat and drink to the things that you do Monday through Friday or at home with your family, 
everything you do should bring glory and honor to God. Jesus' very own words in the book of Matthew, he says, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. The greatest way we glorify God is by living out our faith through obedience and trust every waking moment of our life. Living out our faith in obedience and trust means giving up comfort and ease for the sake of God's kingdom. It means focusing on the responsibilities that we have as Christ followers. Not all good things that come our way due to that faith. It is understanding that we are called to live a life of worship and spiritual disciplines. We have a responsibility. You and I have a responsibility as Christ followers to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with others, to seek justice and mercy within our world and attempt to influence the culture around us as salt and light. When we glorify God, we are not being conformed to this world, but we are being transformed and thus set apart from those very patterns of the world. We seek God's way, not the easy way. When we glorify God, we stop focusing on ourselves, our own agendas, our own personal enjoyments, but rather we seek a vision of God and the needs of a hurting humanity. However, you and I have to know and understand that we cannot glorify God or make this kind of commitment in our own strength. Abram had the power to reject the king of Sodom's offer only after acknowledging his debt to God and sharing a time of personal worship and communion with Melchizedek. Abraham passed the test because he had grown strong in his relationship with God. One of my favorite writers and early church fathers from the third century is Cyprian. Cyprian is an African bishop and early church father. In the year 256, he wrote these words. Interestingly enough, two years later, he was martyred by the Roman Empire. Listen to these words from Cyprian. Beloved brethren, we are philosophers, not in words, but in deeds. We exhibit our wisdom, not by our dress, but by truth. We know virtues by their practice rather through boasting them. We do not speak great things, but we live them. We do not speak great things, but we live them. Today, you and I have a choice. We have a choice to give God glory, to reflect his glory to the world around us, or we could steal and take away God's glory. Jesus taught in Luke 16, if you're faithful with the little things, you'll be faithful with much. In our journey of faith, as we continue to learn to walk by faith, and these tests come to reveal what we've learned, will you and I pass the test? So I ask you individually today, in your own home, there sitting watching this program, 
this service, I ask you personally, how have you handled the victories that God has led you through? Can you be trusted with the blessings and the promises of God? Can you handle the very things which you're praying for? Have you been faithful with the little? We seek greater finances. We seek promotions. We seek influence. How have you handled past the victories? Not a single thread, not a single sandal thong. And then today I ask us as a church corporately, ACAC, can we be trusted with the blessings and promises of God? I truly believe this with all of my heart, that the blessings our church here at ACAC sees today is because this church has properly handled the glory of God over the course of our 126-year history. 36 years ago, God brought a red-haired young pastor to an all-white church in a black neighborhood so that he, God, could write a story that no one would believe. And through this journey of faith over the past 36 years and even the 126 years of this church's history, I'm sure there were moments of testing to see how God's glory would be handled. If Pastor Rock was with me today, I would ask him, give us moments in your past 36 years, in the 36 years of this church, as God was writing this unique history, this beautiful history of the church, give us moments where we were tested. This church was tested in how they handled God's glory. You and I today and moving forward have a choice. In the days and the years ahead, as we continue in this journey of faith, we will be tested. How will we handle God's glory? In this season of turmoil and opinions as a nation, it would be easy for us as a diverse church to steal God's glory and be prideful for who we are to flip our noses in pride at all white or all black churches who aren't as woke as we are God help us as we look as we pray and as we believe that God is calling us to expanded influence may we remember the words of Abram to the king of Sodom not a single thread or sandal throng will I take from what belongs to you. To God be the glory. Father in heaven, we desire with all of our hearts to give you all glory and all honor. And we know that tests will come. And my prayer today, both individually and corporately as a church, that when the day comes and the test comes and we have an opportunity and a decision to make to give you glory or to steal it, that we like Abram would make the right choice, that you would lead us and that you would receive every ounce of glory, that we would respond by we saying not a single thread or sandal thong would we take from you. In your mighty name, amen.